difference between cow and horse manure is the shape, nothing else. Call it what you like, call it a mushroom farm if you like. Just individual communities fighting against these massive international energy corporations and state and federal governments who seem to think it's okay to take away your natu natural amenity. And it is absolutely scarred with these bird blending blooming windmills all over the, all over our beautiful scenery. The thought of more years of being dragged through tribunals and courts does not thrill me. The process is definitely the punishment. The arguments of Dutton, Price, Mundine and others in the No campaign are specious and increasingly absurd. Specious. Well, hello and welcome to Parting Shots. The weekly news podcast from me, Fred Paul, and my indefatigable colleague, Nick Cater, joining me from Rockhampton. Nick, how is it up there? It's, it's great, Fred. What does indefatigable mean? It's um, it means tireless, <laughs> persisting tirelessly. Indeed. And, uh, as in, this is the example I've looked up here, an indefatigable defender of human rights. I'm not sure that's quite me. But anyway, it's sort of on the right line. Well, I, I'd, I'd call you an indefatigable defender of the rights of native species, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> now, but Nick, you are, of course, a prolific producer of content these days. You create your own show here on ADH-TV. You contribute to this podcast. You write for The Australian and various other publications around the world. But this week you made your debut on the highly esteemed Renew Economy website as the mm. villain behind the reduction of the number of windmills in the Chalumban Rainforest in central Queensland. Tell us what happened. Yeah, well, Renew Economy, for uh, listeners who haven't come across it, is, is basically the Pravda of the renewable <laughs> energy industry. So it speaks their truth. <laughs> Uh, anyway, as you know, we've been campaigning against the, um, the, the new Franklin, the Franklin, Gordon on Franklin Dam equivalent for the 21st century, which is the Chalumban uh, wind factory that they're proposing to build up there in wet sclerical forests, right important buffer zone with the wet tropical forests up there in far north Queensland. You know, beautiful country. It's just sensational. And the, the idea you should put 86 wind turbines on there is just completely crazy vandalism but anyway the the, uh, the the efforts we've been putting in on adh and in my columns and others have picked this up i'm delighted to say daily mail ran a big piece others have been running the story now have paying off so the company has pulled back they've gone back from they say they've listened to community concerns they've gone back to 42 turbines from 86. Originally, they started with 200, so it's come right down. Listen to uh, community... Still... But li listen to community concerns, Nick. They've been watching ADH. Well, they have, because they jump on it. They say, Arc Energy will be hoping the changes to the wind farm get out of the crosshairs of prominent anti-wind campaigners, including Murdoch Media regular Nick Cater. <laughs> Cater, amongst others, has eagerly jumped on the bandwagon in opposition to the project, using his conservative media platform, that's ADH, I guess, to stir up controversy. Much of it confected. Well, uh, jumped, well, jumped on the bandwagon? I'd say you're driving it. I create. I built the thing in my backyard, <laughs> and I put it on the rail on the rails, and I'm pushing it as hard as I can. Look, I mean, we we did. We kicked this one off. Nobody had mentioned Chalumbin before we did it on a, yeah. on ADH, and now people realise what a, it's become the cause celebre. Yes. And uh, I, I so the minister Minister Tanya Plibersek has the final say on this project at the end of this month, I think. And if she gives the go ahead after everything that's happened, then. You know, it'd it, it, be disgraceful. Well, it'd be just another quietly. another disgrace uh, on the record of this government. Let's go through mm. what has happened lately. Let's uh, sort of pick it apart a bit. These are all extracts from your show, which went to air on Thursday night and can be seen on demand on at ADH.TV. Of course, you're up in Queensland now where you mm -hmm. continue to wage a one-man information war against the heavily subsidised renewable industry. Um, you put this story together uh, for Thursday night. Let's listen to one of the speakers at a public meeting in Ravenshoe, which is ground zero for this stuff. Let's have a listen. They changed the name because they think that was going to solve the problem. They think that was going to change the outcome of what they wanted. That's just a swipe of the hand. 
just a magic trick. I'm not going to stop. It's still the same place. You know, it, we say Nanaji Wiggy Wiggy Walga still belong to that wabu. Our old people's spirit belong to that forest. So changing the name doesn't take that away. That's a swipe of a hand. The difference between cow and horse manure is the shape. Nothing else. Call it what you like. Call it a mushroom farm if you like. Your intentions are still the same. You still have ill intentions. <laughs> Me and Melita, my mother, Fabian, we didn't give you permission to take away our children's cultural identity. Yeah. We didn't give you that permission. You don't have that right to destroy their future and take away their identity. It belongs to them. And that's where it must stay with our children. Nick, explain to me, mm. what, the, what was the name change? What's that about? Well, it was called Chilumban uh, Wind Farm, they call it. Actually, a wind factory, as we explained earlier. But the Chilumban Wind Farm, Chilumban is a, is a hill which is a sacred site to the durable people. Georgina, you heard speaking, is a, 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 a durable person, a, a durable woman. And uh, so they've changed it to Warora Station. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Uh, uh, so it's the Wawara Station wind farm now. And, and I think they've just realised, they've come late to the game, they've realised these things have got a bad smell about them. So if they call it a station, it sounds like a sheep property. And, and look, they do, they, they do graze cattle there, but it's not what you'd think of as a, it's not, not cleared land, if you know what I mean. It's forests there. So they think that changing the name is going to suit, cause, suit their problems, you know, solve their problems, but... Um, I don't think so. But I it's think from now spin. on... What, it's just what, spin, isn't it, changing the name? It, it is. And what from now on, I think they'll all learn from this. You'll see all these people, Twiggy Forest, who's big in this game, you know, all the, the Koreans who are running this one, the, the Malaysians who are running a solar panel monstrosity down at Wagga Wagga. They'll all start changing the name, you know, from sort of Lotus Creek, which is yeah. one near <laughs> yeah. here. They'll start calling it, you know, Hellhole. <laughs> Hell, you know, worn out, scrubby land, Hellhole Wind Farm or something like that, you know. Because <laughs> the tide is definitely turning, Fred. I don't know if you've, you kind of felt it, but when I started reporting on this probably nine months ago when we really started to get into it on Battleground and in my columns... It seemed like a very, very difficult battle. Nobody wanted to know, you know, all the cards seemed to be in the energy companies and state government's hands, but it's definitely changing. And the fact that uh, Arc Energy have changed this plan, you know, pulled it back, shows that they, they know they're on the back foot. And I think, but the bad thing is, I think a lot of them are trying to get in quick before the tide changes and um, push ahead with some really dodgy proposals up and down the country, particularly well, in Queensland. Well, like, like we were alluding to earlier, uh, you know, you deserve a lot of credit for um, being the uh, initiator of a lot of this change, Nick. I mean, you're one of the one of the only journalists, you, you mentioned it a couple of times in your show on Thursday night, you're one of the only journalists who showed some interest in, and some initiative to get out there. Most most of this type of journalism is conducted from inside a newsroom in the inner city of the uh in the in some part of the office in the inner cities, um, but uh, we will get back to um, you know how the, the strategies. But I just want to grab a, a, a have a listen to this little grab. This is you speaking at a public meeting uh, from your show on Thursday. Let's have a listen. They're each fighting their own lonely battles. They're each outnumbered, outgunned, without the money. Just individual communities fighting against these massive international energy corporations and state and federal governments who seem to think it's okay to take away your natu natural amenity. I've been to these places just like Ravenshoe. Each one of these communities is now divided into the haves and have-nots. It's divided into the people that have taken the money from the wind farms or the solar panels and, and those who haven't, haven't either been offered it or have refused on principle. These are towns that were once very close-knit, towns that used to join together in the firefighting brigade, in the sausage sizzles, in the, in the Lions Club, in everything. Now they do not, because the invasion of this has ruined, ruined these communities. We were not told that we were being asked to save the planet by killing the earth. It's just not on. That's really mm. compelling stuff, Nick. I've I, I got to point out, uh, uh, there's a slight divergence here of strategies. I mean, the, the first one with your uh, with Georgina, the durable woman, 
um, is appealing to the sort of cultural integrity of the traditional inhabitants of the area, um, which is, I, I got to, you know, we, we, we might have to discuss this. I mean, this is unusual for us at ADH. You know, we are defenders of Western civilization. It's unusual for us to be arguing for the preservation of, of, in, of species, you know, under the most uh, sort of dubious well, not in this case, but quite often defenders of, of endangered species are just, you know, vested interests trying to uh, squeeze some money for research grants when, um, you know, the, the species are not particularly endangered yeah. at all. And again, and similarly, I should say is, um, you know, people like us at ADH, you know, talking about the the traditional cultural integrity of the area when in fact, you know, our, our main purpose here at ADH is to uh, is to uh, pray, place a, a higher value on Western civilization and defend it against uh, the forces that would undermine it. Mm, mm. But on, I think you're on more solid ground here, Nick. I'd love to get your opinion on it. You know, when you're saying that these, these, uh, these um, wind turbine companies and renewable energy companies are dividing farming communities... That's yeah. a, that's a pretty solid argument. What's your what's your feeling about those it, two it, strategies? It's an absolute. It's a it's an absolute certainty. It's a common feature, and I've been to you know many of these communities, really up right right from Victoria up to here in where I was last week in far north Queensland, and and it is the same in every one. The community is divided. You know, people that used to go out uh, on the firefighting team together, or or used to be part of the you know do the sausage sizzles down the local school and. You know, you know what these communities are like. They're absolutely split. I mean, today I was in uh, about thirty kilometres uh, west of Rockhampton with uh, with with a couple of really good people, Glenn and Nikki, who've got a, a, a cattle farm there that's about to be surrounded. I mean, literally surrounded by giant wind turbines, two hundred and seventy-five metres tall, and. Um, and they're at war with their neighbours, their neighbours who've taken the shilling from the energy company. So it, 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 does, it does these things, you know, it, it, not only does it threaten the natural habitats, and, and it does feel strange, to be honest, Fred, to, to suddenly find yourself as a tree hugger. <laughs> yes. Which is, but then you, somebody's got to hug the trees because the greenies aren't doing it. You know, Greenpeace, Australian Conservation Foundation, all this mob, they're nowhere to be seen. Friends, so-called friends of the earth, they're nowhere to be seen. They're supporting the renewable energy. Well, that and leads that that leads very well to the next grab we've got. This is a this is a woman you spoke to. I think it was in Cairns. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, she's describing, in very passionate terms, just how ugly these windmills are. Let's have a listen. But recently, we've had all these lovely big windmills start to pollute our scenery and here we are trying to attract tourists to our beautiful world heritage space and show them what we have on offer and it is absolutely scarred with these bird blending blooming windmills all over the all over our beautiful scenery it is an absolute blight absolute scar my son's an engineer who actually works at the costing of these things and has actually said to me they are not viably cost they just don't produce what they say they're doing and we are subsidizing and siphoning off all of our public money to these companies and destroying our beautiful heritage sites that we have here that we're supposed to be attracting tourism and the beauty of it all, and it's all getting destroyed. And it's it's absolutely devastating. Rarely I see them turning, the current ones that are on view on the mountainside there, rarely I see them turning. They're just sitting there like big, ugly scars to remind us of what this government is really doing to our beautiful world heritage landscape. Absolutely disgusting. I'm very, very disappointed. And I'm up here to support these people. I don't live in this area and I probably will never see these particular windmills, but what they're doing to the landscape is absolutely horrendous and it doesn't justify the means to the ends at the end of the day. Tell me, I mean, I think a lot of people are familiar with windmills, unfortunately, and we oh. see them down further south in, you know, farming land. I've seen them in South Australia on what's basically wasteland. Yes. And, you know, that's one thing. But to come across the hill, driving into Ravenshoe, coming up the hill and see those ones in Caban, sticking out of the top of native tropical forest, yeah. yes. it, it, it described to people who haven't seen it what it's like. It's heartbreaking. It's like, um, I don't know, it's like seeing aliens 
invading the beauty that's there. It's like this horrible man-made structure in amongst the most... It's, I, I, I just can't describe. It's like an ugly scar on our landscape. So the first two arguments are, you know, the, the traditional inhabitants of the area are having their culture taken away from them. The second uh, one is that uh, these energy companies are dividing traditionally highly unified uh, communities. But this third one, Nick, I, I find this one kind of very curious. It doesn't get a hell of a lot of uh, sort of airtime, I think. It's a, this aspect of the debate um, needs to get a bit more attention. This is my question to you, Nick. Is it possible that the new generation of environmentalists, who mostly seem to come from the least aesthetic urban neighbourhoods in the nation, simply have no appreciation of beauty? Oh, I think that's probably right, Fred. You know, it was, it was amazing this morning. We were up in a helicopter flying over land in um, central Queensland where they're what's going to be the Moa Creek wind farm and a neighbouring one called the um, uh, Moonlight Wind Farm. I think that's one of Twiggy Forest. But anyway, the, the ironic thing is they're quite close by, within probably five, six kilometres, is the Stanwell Power Station, right, which is, a um, uh, you know, taking pumping out coal-fired power 24 hours a day quite reliably. And it, it looks tiny from the air when you look at this huge area that they're about to take up with this industrial um, scale wind turbine development. But it's got a tower. The Stanwell uh, power station has got this tower, which apparently is 203 metres tall. So you're driving past on the Capricorn Highway and it looks huge. But that's 203 metres, right? But each of these turbines is going to be 275 metres. So they're going to build... Um, Scores, I think it's it's uh, close to 400 turbines are planned for that area. Each one, and you know, add another quarter to the size of the Stanwell power station. Did you say 400? 400 are planned within a 30 kilometer radius. Oh of there my because goodness. because it's got, you know, it's it's blighted because it actually has a couple of decent power stations there, uh, Khalid and and Stanwell, and they've each got a a lot of transmission lines running through. So this is gold for the renewable energy developers. They just want to put their stuff in there and connect it up to the pre-existing grid. And there's some hills, but the hills, when you get up in the chopper and you see them, it's just, uns it's like country probably nobody's walked on for decades because it's too hard. It's just ragged country, hard, uh, bushland, remnant native forest. And uh, it's right up there. That's going to have roads plowed through it. and tops knocked off hills, literally tops knocked, top knocked off, the tops knocked off hills to make a flat platform to put these things on and you just go, this is, this is just awful. I'm, What's the I'm mood sorry like if I do those... sound like a greenie, Fred, but I, I, <laughs> I'm getting just... quite passionate about this. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm speaking to your, 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 your greenie twin brother. Can you, can you put Nick on the phone, please? No, but, uh, but, um, no, but Nick, what's the mood like at these public meetings that you've been attending? Because obviously you have had some success. Uh, there yeah. is some, obviously, uh, people power does, um, does have some uh, effect What's the mood like at the meetings? Who are they? Who, who are they targeting? And do they feel like they can win this fight? They sometimes they think they can win it, but mostly they're deeply pessimistic because they can see all the cards stacked against them. You know, they, the secrecy of these proposals—they're not told the full facts. They're lied to by the renewable energy companies. Uh, those people who take money from the renewable energy companies have to sign non-disclosure agreements so they don't talk about it. And then you've got the state government, you know, up here in Queensland is actually, they've got the most bonkers state government outside of Victoria, I think. So you, they're, they're really pushing this stuff and, the, and people just feel, and plus the fact that none of the mainstream media up until relatively recently has really been prepared to even talk to these people or go out. They feel alone, they feel remote. And if it was just one community, you'd say, oh, well, bad luck. But this is dozens of them. And, and vast swathes of the Australian countryside being converted to industrial use. I just don't believe that, can't believe, Fred, that it doesn't get more attention. Like, it's just yeah. such a radical plan and yeah. it, will, it will permanently change the Australian landscape, particularly up and down the Great Dividing Range, which is great territory for them because they want to get these turbines up in high, windy places. 
So it, it just no nobody seems to bother about this. And 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 people at the meeting today were talking about the difference in the regulations. So you know, if you're a farmer, you want to chop down a single tree, you know, well that's it. That's a hanging offence. <laughs> but if you, if you're building wind turbines, you can chop down swathes of them, hundreds, thousands of these trees to make room for the roads. Yeah, and and they're, they're, what are they, two, over 230 metres high? These things 275, are... Mo- 275. These are big ones. Yeah. These are the, the six to seven megawatt ones. 275. That is huge. That yeah, is, yeah, um, that's a, that's a sky, that's a, the height of a, of a large building in Sydney. You know, I mean... And mm, uh, mm. we're going to get to uh, later on in the show. We're going to get to um, how much trouble the government is actually in. Obviously, Chris Bowen is right behind all this, um, so we'll, mm. we will return to this uh, in a little while when we when we have a little look into uh, what Alan has been ranting about this week in his inimitable way <laughs> and persuasive way, I should say. But let's turn to another issue that became pertinent this time last week. It's it's. Fairly tragic, uh, fairly tragic. It, it is tragic and uh, it certainly needs to be discussed. This is the incident when a man drove a car into pedestrians and other cars in Melbourne last Friday, killing one person and seriously injuring five others. Victorian Premier Dan Andrews was quick to spout the usual talking points in response, saying he had already spent $50 million, $50 million on concrete bollards, after the last time something like this happened in Melbourne, which was in 2017, in which uh, another disturbed person drove a car into pedestrians, killing six people and injuring many more, that particular perpetrator was eventually found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Last week, Dan Andrews said, quote, We owe it to the family of that man who lost his life and those who are injured and those who are caught up in this, we owe it to all of them to try and learn from this incident and any other incident, unquote. Well, Nick, you'll have to pardon my cynicism, but something tells me Dan Andrews is not being entirely sincere here. While we need to wait for the trial to be held to know for all the fact, to know all the facts of this case, it seems highly likely that mental health is an issue in this incident. And on this front, Andrew, Dan Andrews' government and all Australian governments, for that matter, are being suspiciously negligent, in my opinion. This is a topic that is getting very little public debate and it really needs to be discussed. Let's have a listen to this grab from my show on Monday. Australia is facing a mental health crisis right now. And I don't just mean the annual Are You OK? campaign, which attracts most of the media and attention. The crisis is in serious mental health. The standard number of beds for seriously mentally ill people in OECD countries is 70 per 100,000. In Australia, we have 36 per 100,000, half the required rate. The problem is, is, comes from the reluctance of authorities to perform what is called assertive or involuntary administration of medications for conditions such as schizophrenia. Legislation authorising this is in place in every state, so it varies a bit, but the application of it is becoming increasingly unfashionable. Nick, you don't need to spend much time walking around the Melbourne CBD these days to see that mental health is actually a major problem on the streets there. If yeah. Dan Andrews has his way, things will be even worse when the city's second drug injection clinic opens up in the CBD soon. Now, the problem with serious mental illness, such as schizophrenia, according to um, uh, my contact, is, as I said in that quote, um, you're not allowed to I- inject uh, these force, forcibly inject people with the medications that they need. Now, they are, in most cases, like for example with schizophrenia, they only need to be injected once a month and they are transformed from being psychotic to relatively safe and uh, unlikely to cause their fellow people uh, any harm. Now, um, But these methods are increasingly less fashionable because, Nick, to force even a dangerous and psychotic patient 
to undergo an injection is these days seen to be an abuse of human rights. Now, this is I think this is very typical of the sort of government policies we see these days, Nick, that there's never really an overall cost benefit analysis of of a of a policy like if it if it you know breaks some sort of human right against uh, bodily autonomy then uh, then that's an absolute and the benefits of the, the otherwise benefits to the community are dismissed what's your take on it yeah I look I, i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna disagree with you here fred i think uh, i I think that bodily autonomy is is a fundamental human right, and 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 the, this came home to us forcefully during the COVID uh, debacle. Now we weren't forcibly pinned down and injected with this vaccine, but you know I suppose they could have done. But you know we we had the next worst thing, which was basically people being deprived of their livelihoods or you know access to go out and meet other people because they refuse to take the vaccine. I think that is an important principle. And look, I've got some experience of this um, with serious mental health, and I know the issues involved, but I do kind of think, the, you know, when you hold, when you get to the point where we're holding people down and forcibly injecting them, you only do that under the most very dire circumstances. Uh, I think your point you made, though, about, about, residential accommodation for the mentally ill is probably the, the pertinent point because, as you know, from about the 70s or 80s onwards, we went through this fashion of doing away with um, uh, mental health uh, accommodation and have, having people out in the community. Well, that that's not working. And, and the fact is that our prisons are very often de facto mental homes these days too because that's where people end up because of mental illness. So I think the the lack of of residential care for uh, people with serious mental illness is a big big issue, and that's where we need to direct our attention. Because if somebody is in that care environment, even a sort of sheltered accommodation, then there's people there to make sure they they take their medication. And um, you know, I think there are other ways to make sure people take their medication rather than forcibly pinning them down. That that one troubles me a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, point taken. I mean, it is an interesting uh, contrast that uh, governments or, or, or medical authorities are reluctant or, or the courts are reluctant to allow, um, apparently these things happen in front of magistrates' court, magistrates are reluctant to allow medical authorities to forcibly inject well, you know, you give them an inch on this, Fred, and they'll take a mile, right? You know, as soon as they've got some get-out clause for that, then the next time we get, you know, a COVID-type scare along, they'll be saying, well, you know, you must be mentally ill if you're not going to take this vaccine, therefore we will pin you down. You know, <laughs> we, you, no long, you no longer have agency and we'll... But, but isn't that, a, isn't that a, the sort of uh, the, the contrast of our times, that the, the authorities are reluctant to medicate people who actually need the medication, whether they agree, or agree to that or not, but they are perfectly willing to lock us all up and inject us with an <laughs> experimental medication when we pose no threat to society. I mean, that's the world we live in these days, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, Fred. No, you're expecting consistency from these, <laughs> the nanny state lefty, you know, people. You know, right speaking of, but you, said, you said that this uh, sort of policy change, um, you can trace it back to the 70s and 80s. I trace it back to the, the book, and film one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It mm. made mm. the incarceration or the the, the sort of uh, the enforced residential uh, facilities for the mentally ill incredibly unpopular, and it it gave everyone the uh, the false impression that if you just you know if you give them if you give the mentally ill some liberty and treat them nice, then they will um, stop acting uh, psychotically. Of course. That has uh, not turned out to be the case. As now, it happens, Fred, I actually stayed, my wife and I actually stayed a night in a mental hospital this week. <laughs> it was, well, it used to be, uh, it was closed, I think, in, it's in, um, in uh, Charters Towers, a beautiful facility on the edge of Charters Towers, which was closed in the early 2000s, I think, and, and now has been turned into a lovely 
relaxing resort with its own swimming pool and nice rooms and countryside all around you. I wish I could remember the name of it, but I, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure there's only one former nurse, uh, mental hospital in Charters Towers. That well, yeah. <laughs> did, you feel, did you feel spooked by the place or was it, how was it? <laughs> no, because it's it's beautifully done. I mean, actually, this is one of the things of uh, the in, in the enlightened era of treating mental health, which began in the early twentieth century in Australia. Uh, sorry, early nine, yeah, early twentieth century. They they built these beautiful places because they they realised that if you surround people with nature and lights, nice white buildings, there was a calming effect and. Um, uh, so yeah, across Australia, there's a lot of these really well. There's one in buildings. there's one in mm. Roselle here in Sydney, yeah. and if I'm not mistaken, it's, it's long since been closed down. But if I'm not mistaken, there was a patient found there uh, just a few years ago who had um, returned uh, from the Vietnam War, uh, having been seriously disturbed by the war and wasn't was sort of so disturbed that he wasn't able to identify himself. He wound up being locked up in a mental institution and his family had for, you know, four decades or so thought that he'd perished, that he'd been killed in the war. Wow. And some decades later, he was identified and reu reunited with his family. I mean... Yeah, mental illness. That's a. Mm, uh, mm, it, it's a. Mm. Anyway, let's um, let's not dwell on that too much because we've got to listen to what Alan Jones has been up to. As usual, ah, he has Alan. he has been on Alan's fire. Let's, Alan's rant of the week. Let's hear it. <laughs> let's have a listen. Yeah. I'll be having more to say about the prime minister tonight because it is our country, and our government, and it's time we took seriously the promise, or do you call it a threat? when he told us he was changing the country. When he launched, see, they, these people forget they're servants of ours. We elect them to do our bidding. We don't elect them to please themselves. When he launched the voice campaign, he said unapologetically, I'm here to change the country. Well, he's doing that with no mandate for what he's doing. But ideology has overtaken political responsibility. I warned months and months ago the Albanese honeymoon was over. I have been in this game too long not to see the storm clouds. And look where we are. On Qatar Airlines, the Prime Minister didn't know what his minister was doing or deciding, nor did her fellow ministers. The Prime Minister's failure to stay at arm's length from corporate sycophants sees him now wearing the odium of Qantas. Rightly or wrongly, the failure to block Qatar Airways is seen as a trade-off for Qantas sticking yes on its planes and flying yes supporters for free around the country. Not the no supporters, not the no supporters. But none of this stops the Prime Minister from flying around the world. He was asked in New Delhi why he was travelling while a once-in-a-generation referendum was being debated at home. He offered the ludicrous response that he was joining world leaders for discussions that directly impact Australia's living standards. Thank God he wasn't asked what impact on living standards he was talking about. <laughs> he seems to have forgotten that his party won government on the lowest primary vote in 100 years. He hasn't got a mandate to be pleasing himself. His satisfaction rating with voters has understandably collapsed into the Qantas quagmire. <laughs> he tells it like <laughs> it is. But I like the fact that he sees the storm clouds gathering, Nick, I think uh, Alan is often the oracle on these uh, in these circumstances. Do you think he is uh, predicting a serious decline and collapse of the current federal government? I think, yeah, like I think he spotted it, hasn't he? I mean, and you can see this in Albanese's approval ratings. But you know, he's 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 a man that's finding it increasingly hard to do anything right. You know, going from that honeymoon period into, I mean, I read about this on Monday, and and in the Australian. And the, the trouble is he's up in the clouds, Albanese. You know, they asked him, he was asked in a podcast by Neil Mitchell, what are you going to do to give young people hope? And he says, well, you know, I'm going to solve climate change, you know. <laughs> like, he just doesn't get it. He just, he's, he's in a different world and he doesn't understand the world of pain that people are in. And, and then I don't think people mind their prime minister flying around the world. They, they kind of, 
you know, they want him to kind of represent the country's interests, but it becomes a problem when there are pressing domestic in, uh, in, uh, pressing domestic matters which he doesn't seem to be addressing. And the voice is one, and the other big one is cost of living. When did you ever hear him talk about the cost of living recently? But that, you go, you know, around... For all for, for people around the country, that's the number one issue right now. I've got to say, I was lucky enough to be at the press club yesterday to hear the wonderful uh, Jacinta Nampajimpa Price deliver her speech. Uh, conspicuously, the press club was the main room of the press club was being renovated this week and this week only. Uh, to co- coincidentally, coincidentally, for when uh, Jacinta was to deliver this historic speech. But uh, I think the the, the, the sort of uh, cosiness of the room uh, added to the uh, the feeling that it was a, a pretty significant occasion. You know, normally the press club is a room full of people sitting around tables, eating their lunch and paying half attention to the speech at hand. But eating uh, rubber eating rubber chicken. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. So I mean, in this on this occasion, uh, Jacinta had everyone's absolutely undivided attention and. Uh, it was a it was a magnificent speech filled with positivity. I've got to say about the the character of the Australian people and the opportunity for us to move together into the future um, as a united nation without without needing anything such as a voice to parliament. Then that was followed by probably about twenty questions from each from individual journalists. And uh, one of them was from a chap from The Guardian who said, uh, do you think that uh, Aborigines are still suffering from the trauma of colonisation, as if colonisation, <laughs> as, as if any current uh, <laughs> living uh, Indigenous people were even alive then? But uh, nevertheless, he, um, her initial response was no, and there was a long pause, and I thought, well, that's that's it. I mean, enough said. But anyway, she went. She did go on to explain. Look, our our standard of living is uh, is incalculably higher since uh, the um, the days before settlement, or even the days before you know two three generations ago, when a lot of indigenous people had never even encountered white civilization. Anyway, uh, he didn't get the answer that he was hoping, so he asked it again. The whole exchange took probably two, maybe two and a half minutes. And it was, it has been since then, most of the focus of the uh, of the reporting, and uh, and Jacinta had the audacity to say that the lives of people whose ancestors were no were were virtually barbaric nomads roaming the country, engaging in tribal warfare, and treating their women and children abominably and often, uh, you know, on the verge of starvation, uh, that their lives now in this thoroughly thriving and modern and healthy and prosperous and free society was actually an improvement. Nick, what do you make of all this? It's just unbelievable. Well, you know, Jacinta Price's audacity in refusing to conform to the stereotype victim that these... Guardian journalists expect her to be. This is what upsets them. You know, yes. she's supposed to play that role. She's not playing that role. And that upsets them because it, it disturbs their whole worldview. I mean, he, here you have a woman who is, uh, you know, not only um, of, of sound Indigenous heritage, but, but from, you know, that central Australia, from those difficult parts, from the town of Yundamu, which is, you know, has problems, as you know. And, uh, and and she knows what it's like there and she's refusing to play that role. So that upsets them. It doesn't... She's not the... She's not behaving like the noble savage that she should be. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man is... Uh, man is so uh, I can understand why she's upsetting them, but yeah. it's just crazy. I mean, um, I mean, interestingly, I mean, I'd I, I say up in, up in Ravenshoe, I would have spoken to probably half a dozen or more uh, members of the durable people up there, none of them want the voice. All of them think it's an absolute joke. That um, you know, as Georgina said, that woman you heard earlier elsewhere in the interview. Well, if you want to represent, if you want, uh, if you want truly want a, a voice to Parliament for every Aboriginal tribe in Australia, there isn't enough room in Parliament. You know, <laughs> uh, and, and they're really offended by the idea you just get some, you know, jackass from 
one part of Australia who's supposed to be able to represent all of them. They just think that's absurd. That's ridiculous. Well, I mean, see, this is another example of, of the benefits of, of journalists like yourself getting out of the inner city newsroom and going out and talking to people on the ground. I mean, the response from the left-wing media that, you know, Jacinta has the audacity to, to you know, say that uh, um, Indigenous lives are uh, immensely more uh, healthy and prosperous since white settlement. I mean, that is a common perception across middle Australia and yet the uh, the assumption among the left-wing media is that everyone thinks like them and everyone is a graduate of a uh, of, of a useless um, you know university degree in uh, in gender and interracial studies <laughs> and uh, will agree will will have the same reflexive response that um, that of course indigenous people are oppressed by um by this white colonial um you know rapacious society that we've built it's um it's it, yeah. it gets a little tiring anyway speaking of tiring our another indefatigable colleague of ours has had we've a, got plenty of indefatigable people <laughs> <ain't you? laughs> but i think it's in the job description it is it must, yes yes must we, be indefatigable <laughs> <laughs> so well our colleague uh, lyle shelton had a troubling development in his legal travails this week as you may recall a month ago lyle won a case against a couple of drag queens who he criticized for performing before children at a Brisbane public library more than three years ago. Now, last Friday, an appeal was lodged against that decision. Let's have a listen to Lyle's response. Well, we don't have free speech in this country. So far, it has cost north of $300,000 in my case against two LGBTIQA plus drag queens. I could not have afforded this, but incredibly generous people, most of whom are not wealthy, donated to my legal defence after I was sued. We won. Without these people, their prayers, and the incredible legal team at the Human Rights Law Alliance, I would be in much bigger trouble. I can't thank them enough. I can't repay them, although I think the drag queens should. I went through this uh, past week thinking I was clear of the 30-day appeal window. Surely a three-year legal ordeal culminating in a three-day trial in a tribunal, which included three hours of cross-examination by a senior counsel, was enough. That case ended with a 78-page decision by QCAT member Jeremy Gordon dismissing the drag queen's complaint and saying that I had acted in good faith and had not vilified them on the basis of their gender or sexual identity. But on Friday last week, uh, late in the evening, just hours before the deadline, Johnny Valkyrie, a woman who presents to little children as a man, and Dwayne Hill, a man who dresses as a hypersexualized woman in front of little children, filed an appeal. The thought of more years of being dragged through tribunals and courts does not thrill me. The process is definitely the punishment. If politicians would do their job, our flawed anti free speech, anti-discrimination and anti-vilification laws could be easily reformed. Activists with access to taxpayer-funded LGBTIQA plus legal services should not be allowed to sue their fellow citizens because of hurt feelings in a bid to shut down discussion on matters of public importance. They should debate, not litigate. What a great line. They should debate, mm. not litigate. The process mm. is the punishment, isn't it, Nick? It is. And they don't debate because they can't win the argument. But look, I mean, th this happens. This is the problem with this this sort of complaints procedure: is that there's zero cost or risk to the complainant, but massive cost and risk to the defendant. And that's what Lyle Shelton has shown. I mean, he, he should have those costs refunded, but of course, uh, those complainants are protected by, you know, they're the victims, so you're not allowed to sort of charge them any money, all the money has to come from taxpayers. It, it's an outrageous thing and and uh, I just really think Lyle's been through a hell of a lot. Thank goodness he did defend it and those great people of the Human Rights Law Alliance who, it's not a particularly wealthy or well-funded organisation as he said, all their money does come from ordinary individuals and they're fighting an unequal battle all the time against 
you know, these these vexatious uh, complaints. So, well, yeah, they, they, but, he, I mean, Lyle's not the only one. I mean, we talk mm. occasionally on ADH about Sal Grover, who yep. is at the who I think in April next year will be. Uh, hauled in front of the federal court to uh, defend the right to um, believe that uh, men cannot be women. And that case is, is quite likely to go all the way to the high court because, as in, as in Lyle's case, this, this is a zero-sum situation. You know, one side wins, the other side loses. If the losing side, side can raise some money, they'll take it to the next stage until it winds up in the high court, it's just a uh, it's a bottomless pit of money. But it's an interesting um, point that uh, Lyle made. If only our politicians would do what they should, our you know laws could be enacted that that make this kind of vexatious litigation uh, impossible and make it impossible also for people to sue because they've had their feelings hurt. But Nick. I don't know. You're the politic. You're the political uh, expert of the two of us. Can that? Can, is that even possible in Australia now? To sort of well, let's just let's just say, let's just say it like it is. Can we repeal Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act? Well, it's, of course it is, Fred, because you know you could do a straw poll amongst sort of reasonable Australian people, which are the majority of Australians, and you would find great support for this. They all think this is outrageous. You know, they think the whole debate about, you know, what is a woman is just a joke, right? There's a common sense view which most people hold is that that's just a confected lot of nonsense. So, but, but of course what it takes is politicians willing to, and it's difficult for them because they don't, they, you know, they're having to work in an arena which is uh, dominated by, you know, people like David Crow, you know, the, 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 the mainstream left-leaning, sort of drippingly stupid woke media. <laughs> you know, they, they've, got to, they've got to survive in that environment. So I do understand why at times it seems like they've, they've caved to pressure, but sometimes I, I wonder if there's actually any alternative for them. I had a, I mean, I've been in the media for more than 30 years, like yourself, and I, I, I had a little kind of light bulb moment um, just yesterday, realising just how far or how low the media has descended in this country. Because, as I said, I was at Jacinta's speech. It was a wonderful occasion. I felt like I was witnessing history being made. And yet the focus on the media, by the media, was on the one most absurd but most contentious point or the most uh, sort of adversarial point. Like So the, the media knows... Um, that the, the the best thing to focus in on is the one that's going to make either one one side go yeah that's right and the other side go or make their blood boil you know I mean but what what was um, overlooked on that occasion and on every occasion is the positivity there were there was enormous reasons to be positive about what Jacinta said yesterday but you wouldn't have known it from uh, the way the media covered it. No, because you've got rather small-minded, not very smart, not very adventurous in their thinking journalists, and they just do what journalists have always done, right? Look, get a story you think is going to make them happy on the news desk and file early and go home for tea. I mean, that's journalists, right? <laughs> you and I have done that. Yes, but, indeed. Well, uh, in our day, you, it, was, it was over the road for a beer, but anyway. And if you work at The Guardian, you know, you're hardly going to make trouble for yourself by going on back and saying, well, the, the trouble is, you know, the story is that Jacinta Price is a wonderfully strong woman who bucks the conventional wisdom, right? That's not going to get you, <laughs> he's not going to get you even a, you know, down page 43 story in, in The Guardian. So I sort of feel for journalists, but I wish there was more conviction and yeah. courage and independent thinking, Fred. They just yes. don't seem to sort of... Yes. Have curious minds, do not, not like us here at uh, at ADH. But speaking of the mainstream media, let's give credit to uh, a, a friend of ours from the mainstream media for our our final parting shot this week, and it's a funny one. Tim Blair of the Daily Telegraph noticed this amusing aspect of the otherwise conspicuously unfunny voice to parliament debate. This is from my show on Monday night. Let's have a listen. At a time when civilizational decline gives us little to laugh about, 
along comes an unexpected and unintentional gag. Have a listen to this. It's Marsha Langton explaining one of the reasons why we should vote yes in the Voice to Parliament referendum next month. The arguments of Dutton, Price, Mundine and others in the No campaign are specious and increasingly absurd. Forget what she's saying for a second and marvel at how similar she sounds to this bloke. I'm a Republican too. This is a, <laughs> I'm a paradox, viewers. I am a Republican uh, in many ways. You know, I hold the Republican sympathies of a, uh, a socialist elder statesman. And my that was, of course, the brilliant Barry Humphreys creation, Les Patterson, appearing on the Michael Parkinson show in 1981. Nick, Sir Les was the archetypal privileged leftist, oblivious to the disparity between his own behaviour and the pseudo-intellectual policies he espoused, particularly in, uh, in relation to culture and the yards. Does Marsha Langton have more in common with him than just the sound of her voice? <laughs> what happened to this sort of respectful, polite debate that Noel Pearson promised we, they were going to have a week ago? Like, it's not coming, is it? It's yeah, not going to happen. It's not. No. It is. Um, yeah, look, I think yeah, Marsha Langton, they're all wedded to this idea for some strange reason. And, and look, I mean... To be fair, even some of our friends are, you know, they're yeah. all Chris Kenny at the, at the sky, you know, good mate. And I'm, I'm yes. not going to, I'm not going to lose a friend over this, but I do, I find it puzzling. But I guess if you've invested in that idea, then it's very hard to switch off. I suppose it just shows why you should hold ideas lightly in your fingers and be prepared to relinquish them if they turn out to be silly. Well, yeah. that's a very good point, Nick, and uh, you're right. Uh, too many friendships are lost over things like this these days, and, uh, you know, I, you and I would... Uh, you, speak, you speak for both of us. Chris Kennedy... Chris Kenny is a lovely bloke and an old friend of ours, and uh, we disagree wholeheartedly on this voice Caper. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of the voice is just crazy enough without losing friends over it. So I'm refusing to do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to yeah. do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Nick, uh, we've made it through another podcast without disagreeing with each other too much. And I think we're still friends. I'm looking forward to having a beer with you when you get back to Sydney next week. Uh, but mm. that's that's it for this week uh, of Parting Shots. Uh, what, what's your, uh, what's your out, outtake from Rockhampton, Nick? Uh, the, this, the, the, the renewable energy uh, problem is far bigger than I even imagined. Like you just go to community after community up here and just see. There is one shire here called the Banana Shire. They've got 20 projects on the go, right? 20 renewable projects in one shire proposed and, and they say that there's at least one new proposal every day somewhere in the country. The madness has set in, governments have let this loose and somebody's got to stop it. Thank goodness for the nationals that are declaring we should have a moratorium on renewable energy till we've worked out what the hell we're doing. So I'm with them. Take the moratorium off nuclear energy and place it on renewable energy. <laughs> well, that's a very good outtake. Mine is that uh, we are indeed being run by the modern equivalents of Sir Les Patterson and uh, Australia is fast becoming a, a <laughs> bit of a joke, but uh, we still love the place and, um, and uh, we will be back next week. Thanks for listening to Parting Shots. Good on you, Fred. See you, Nick.